This is the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, with expert advice from Pittsburgh CPA, attorney, and retirement and estate planning expert, Jim Lang, the best-selling author of Retire Secure and The Roth Revolution, Pay Taxes Once and Never Again. Now, let's talk smart money. And welcome to the Lang Money Hour. I'm Dan Weinberg, along with Jim Lang. And our guest this week is Larry Swedro, a noted researcher and nationally recognized investment expert. Larry is director of research for Buckingham Strategic Wealth. He has authored 15 books, including his latest, Your Complete Guide to Factor-Based Investing, as well as Think, Act, and Invest Like Warren Buffett, among many others. Larry has made numerous appearances on TV, sharing his ideas with viewers of NBC, CNBC, CNN, and Bloomberg personal finance. As a researcher, Larry has earned a reputation for evidence-based investing and exposing misinformation coming out in the mainstream financial media. Over the next hour, you're going to learn what alpha is, why most investors don't take Warren Buffett's advice, why active money management is a loser's game, and we're going to spend a significant amount of time on Larry's list of some of the lessons we learned from the market in 2016. With that, let's say hello to Jim Lang and Larry Swedro. Welcome, Larry. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me back. Great to be with you. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, you sent me a whole bunch of things that we could talk about. And, of course, your book, Factor-Based in- Investing, which is your most recent, is excellent. But I thought for our listeners, the intelligence report that you put out um, called Lessons from 2016 was, was spectacular. Um, and it also happens to be consistent with what you have been advocating, what, for 15, 20 years. So I thought if we could go through some of those lessons that our, our readers would and listeners would get a, um, a lot of information from the program. So would that be okay if we went through some yeah, of your, those sure. valuable That'd lessons? Yeah, sure. That would be great. Uh, just for your listeners' benefit, uh, if they're interested, uh, my blog, uh, which is on ETF.com, and so I've been writing for several years there. A couple of weeks ago, they posted this series, uh, uh, and you can find it uh, under my name there, uh, and your readers can, uh, can uh, follow it there. Uh, but they should also know that I've been writing this Lessons Learned piece now for, I think, something like 10 years because every year the markets do provide us with lessons on the prudent investment strategy. And many times the markets provide us with what I call remedial courses, meaning they cover lessons that it provided in previous years. So most of the lessons, or at least many of the ones that the market taught in 2016, you would have found in my lessons learned in 2015 and 14 and 13. Unfortunately, many investors keep doing what Einstein said is the definition of insanity and repeating the same mistakes over and over again. Could you repeat the resource that our listeners uh, could go to if they wanted to read both uh, that blog as well as many of your other helpful blogs? Yeah, sure. The uh, website is etf.com, and that's the general section, so you could do a search under my name. But they also have a section called ETF News and Strategy. If you highlight that, a dialog box opens up and there's a section called Index Investor Corner, and then you'll get a list of every blog I've written for as far back as you're willing to go. 
Okay, great. But the simple thing is to go to edf.com, type in Swedro, S-W-E-D-R-O-E, and there it is. So why don't, why don't we get into the meat of the program, and let's talk about lesson number one. Active money management is a loser's game. And by the way, that's the um, a, a similar uh, f- phrase that Charles Ellis wrote a book called The Loser's Game. So why don't you tell us what the loser's game is and then maybe tell us why. Yeah, so Charles Ellis, who wrote uh, his first book, came out literally at the same time my first book uh, came out. And I think every one of your listeners who hasn't read it, his book is certainly a classic. And Ellis called active management a loser's game. And you can define a loser's game as one that, while it's possible to win, the odds of doing so are so poor you shouldn't try. So you obviously can get rich uh, buying lottery tickets, but you wouldn't take your retirement account to the lottery ticket office. You wouldn't take it to the racetrack if you're intelligent either. Uh, And Ellis would say perhaps you shouldn't take it to the Merrill Lynch or Goldman Sachs or TD Ameritrade or whatever office because while it's possible to outperform the market, picking stocks uh, and trying to time it, the odds of doing so are so poor. And yet year after year, the vast majority of investors pour the vast majority of their money into active funds, not index funds. And every year, Jim, active managers come up with excuses about why they failed, but then try to tell you why this year will be different. So what I presented here was a perfect example of why all of the nonsense that active managers use as excuses for their failure is simply nonsense. So uh, last year was a very typical year in the sense that we had a very wide dispersion of returns. The S&P returned 12 percent. Twenty-five stocks returned almost four times that at least. So 25 stocks returned at least 46 percent. And 25 stocks uh, lost at least 23%, so underperforming the S&P by at least 35%. Now, obviously, this should have been very simple to outperform the market, right? All you had to do was overweight the top 25 performers and underweight or totally avoid the bottom 25, and you would have blown away the market and yet the vast majority of active managers fail to outperform. Uh, what I show here in 2016, which was a pretty typical year, Vanguard's index funds had an average ranking of 37, which means they outperformed 63% of all of the active managers. And even better, the fund families that I use mostly in our firm, uh, the funds of dimensional fund advisors, which are might think of them as more sophisticated versions of index funds, had a ranking of 18, so they outperformed 82%. And even better, Jim, when we look at 15 years and we adjust for survivorship bias, the Morningstar data, which anyone can find, uh, unfortunately excludes funds that have disappeared, and of course the ones that have disappeared have done poorly, but I added those funds back in, got a hold of the data, uh, and made the adjustments. 
If you do that over the last 15 years, Vanguard's index funds have outperformed 79% of active managers, and the DFA funds have outperformed 90%. I don't like those odds working against me. Clearly, the vast majority of investors would have been better off simply using index funds or the passive funds of dimensional fund advisors. All right. Um, as you probably know, um, dimensional fund advisors are the set of index funds that our firm uh, recommends to clients and that we work with. Uh, why Shows would... you what a smart man you are, Jim. <laughs> um, thank you. But, but, but frankly, the real beneficiaries are my clients. Right. Why would one set of index funds, and I know that DFA is a little bit of a hybrid, and it isn't a, exactly a pure index fund, but right. why would one – but it's still ultimately not active money. It's well, passively managed. Why would one passively managed set of funds outperform, let's say, the Vanguard S&P 500, which is, which, is, which is what most people think of as the benchmark to beat? And you're saying um, four out of five companies fail to beat it and actually underperform it. Right. Uh, well, they didn't underperform necessarily the S&P. For 80% on average underperformed uh, if they were in that, call it, asset class of large cap blend stocks. Uh, and uh, so, for example, over the, tw- over the last 15 years, uh, with the survivorship bias in the data, uh, Vanguard's 500 fund outperformed 74% of all of the active funds. Uh, but you have to compare things on an apples-to-apples basis. So, for example, the DFA small value fund should be compared to, say, an active manager who invests in small value stocks, not an S&P 500, because they have very different risk and return profiles. The DFA small value fund outperformed 98% even before survivorship bias. So we want to make sure we're comparing apples to apples here. Second thing to answer your question is this. Uh, people can debate whether something is active or passive. There's a lot of what I call semantical arguments uh, here. So you could even argue, while most people would say an S&P 500 index fund is passive, it really isn't if you want to take an extreme point of view because if it was purely passive, it would own the top 500 stocks. But the S&P isn't run that way. There is a committee that chooses 500 stocks that they think fairly represent all of the major industries, but they think they've chosen somewhat stronger companies, whatever. So it is a committee that is actually choosing it. So if you want to make the case, I wouldn't argue it's active, where if you bought the top 500 stocks, that would be passive. Now, second point I want to make is DFA, while you and I would agree they're passive because they do no individual stock picking and no market timing, they are in index funds because they don't try to replicate any individual indexes. Uh, And in my mind, Everything, any index fund except a total market fund is really a dumb index, and really, in general, investors can find better alternatives. So 
there are just some pure negatives of indexing. One is simply that, for example, if a small stock leaves its index, it immediately must be sold by an index fund. At the same time, every other index fund is selling it, and that creates very large transactions costs, and active managers can actually game the system knowing they're going to trade, sell ahead of it, and exploit that. Uh, there are some negatives of indexing that are like that. The DFA funds avoid all of those negatives or minimize them through their structure, uh, and that allows them to outperform. So, for example, in the last 15 years, uh, the Vanguard uh, Small Value Fund has underperformed the DFA Small Value Fund by something, if my memory serves like, 1.1% a year. And I can explain to people why that is pretty simply. Uh, so here's a way to think about it. Uh, small stocks outperform large stocks, right, Jim? Because markets perceive them as riskier. It doesn't happen every year, but that's what you should expect in the long term, correct? That's right. All right. So the uh, most people think of two small value funds, especially if they're passive, should be similar. But because of the index Vanguard chooses to replicate, the average stock in, the, in that index, and by the way, you can look up this data on Morningstar.com, the average stock in their index fund has a market cap utilization of about $3 billion. Now, that doesn't sound actually all that small to me, but at any rate, that's the figure. If you look at the DFA fund, uh, in that uh, same category, it has an average market capitalization of less than a billion and a half. So it means it's much smaller uh, and therefore has higher expected returns. Now, if you look at the value portion of that same, uh, same two funds, the Vanguard fund uh, has higher P.E. ratios for example, than the DFA funds, something maybe like 18 and a half versus 17 and a half. So the higher price to earnings you have, the lower expected returns are. So DFA's funds is smaller and more valuey because it chooses to define stocks in that it will buy its universe in a different way that gives a deeper exposure to these factors, and in the long term, that should result in higher returns. So structure matters and how, and how funds trade. One last thing is a good example. Vanguard's index fund will sell a stock as soon as it leaves an index. DFA's fund will stop buying it, but it may not sell it right away. It will put it in a hold category for a while, uh, and eventually sell it off slowly over time rather than trying to sell it immediately and maybe have large trading costs. So there's a couple of examples. Okay, so the trading cost is one, but I think the thing that people can understand and, and frankly I think accounts for probably the lion's share of the difference, just on the issue uh, for discussion's sake of size and mm -hmm. price-earnings ratio, right. that, that the smaller companies – very small, like one and a half billion, historically have done better than companies that are, say, twice that big at three billion. And one of the reasons why the DFA fund 
DFA small would outperform Vanguard small was because the DFAs are actually much smaller. That, that's exactly right. The Vanguard fund over the last 15 years has returned 9.67%. The DFA fund, I'm actually just pulling it up, so make sure your readers, uh, your listeners have the latest information. It'll take me one more second. Uh, and it's returned 10.84%. Now, most people would think, why shouldn't I buy the Vanguard fund? It's a hell of a lot cheaper its expense ratio is only eight basis points. DFA's fund costs 52, but it's that higher exposure to the size and value factors as well as more patient trading and some other things it actually does that is based upon academic research. So DFA funds, for example, even if it's in that size bracket, if the fund, uh, if that security uh, has... Uh, large investments and low profitability, it won't buy it at all. It screens it out because the academic research says that those types of stocks have very poor returns. So it's not in their eligible universe, even though it might be in an index. They won't buy IPOs. They won't buy stocks trading under $2 because they historically have poorer returns as well. So they they don't decide I'll buy this IPO but not that one. They just screen out all these stocks with these negative characteristics. And so the DFA fund is outperformed by quite a bit, even though it costs 44 more basis points a year to run. Right, so well the that... value that matters, the value added is higher than the, than the extra expense. All right. Well, I think that that is helpful. So why don't we go on to the second lesson? So the second lesson that you write about is that returns come in very short and unpredictable. And I think that short is maybe relatively understandable, mm -hmm. but maybe if you could answer that question, why do returns come in short, but more importantly, unpredictable bursts? Well, if they were predictable, they wouldn't happen in short bursts. They would happen, you know, everyone would know when they're coming and, you know, it would happen, you know, immediately on day one, soon as information became available. Uh, the problem is most of the returns occur because of something unexpected happens. And a great example was last year. Uh, if it's unexpected, by definition, it can't be predicted. Uh, so that the DFA small value fund, I use that example, had a great year. It was up 28.3%. But through October, it had a pretty average year. It was up about 8%, certainly not a bad year, uh, but it was up 8 In other words, November and December were up those two months 18.8%. Now, that all happened basically after Trump's victory, which I think almost everybody would say was not a predictable event. And, in fact, most people were betting that if Trump got elected, the markets would crash. But that didn't happen, so there's a great example of what we mean uh, by that one case. Uh, I go on to point out uh, some great examples from history I dug up uh, looking at the academic research. There was a study called Black Swans and Market Timing, meaning how not to generate alpha. It looked at 107 years of data ending in 2006. There are over 29,000 trading days. 
if you took out the best 100 of those days, you lost 99.7% of the returns. 99.7%. So 100 days out of 29,000, that tells you it clearly must be unpredictable. Nobody could identify ahead of time the best 100 days. Now, I will tell you the same thing is true of the worst 100 days. If somehow you could have avoided those, you probably would have avoided almost all the losses. But nobody can tell you out of 107 years which will be the worst 107 days. I am finding this very interesting. Uh, I don't know if we're going to get to all our lessons, and I would love to continue with lesson three, which is events occur that no one predicted. And I will also mention that Larry is um, a prolific author, um, has written, I think, 15 books, the most recent being Factor-Based Investing, which I think is a wonderful book. Um, my favorite is uh, Think, Act, and Invest, like Warren Buffett or something close to that, that title. And the other resource um, is if you go to ETF.com, again, www.etf.com, and when, in the search bars, type in Swedro, S-W-E-D-R-O-E, you will find a wealth of information from a very bright guy who has nothing but the consumer's best interests at heart. So, oh, thanks very much, Jim. Appreciate well, I, I mean that sincerely. I, th- I think you've played that role um, probably your whole career, but certainly since, since I've known you and known of you. So the third lesson is events occur that no one predicted. So why don't we talk about some of the big events that did occur that no one predicted and what the lesson is regarding events occurring that no one predicted. Yeah, well, I think the two I chose to highlight here were two events that shocked all of the pollsters, the experts. One was Brexit uh, that no one thought would happen, or certainly very few. And on top of that, they thought if it did happen, it would be a disaster for the market. And when it did happen, the immediate reaction was, of course, highly negative. But, of course, markets then immediately turned around. And if you panicked and sold, you really suffered. And the second, of course, was Donald Trump's election, which almost nobody predicted. And the immediate reaction was exactly what people thought might happen, which was the market dropped 800 points. And, of course, we now know that the market went on a nice rally right after that. And, again, if you had sold at the bottom, you know, you're with the, you know, with the first wave of panic selling, now you're stuck and you don't know what to do because you still got Donald as president, but the market's higher. How do you get back in? That's one of my warnings to people. You should never panic and sell. Uh, by the way, Warren Buffett never panics and sells, and he's actually bought uh, one of his largest investment commitments in a long time in the, since Trump uh, was elected. So I think uh, you might ask yourself if you're tempted to panic, ask if Warren Buffett's panicking. The answer is generally going to be no, and then ask yourself, what do I know that Buffett doesn't know, and maybe I ought to do what he does and emulate him and not give in to my emotions. So that's a good lesson for people right there. Uh, Can we talk about Donald Trump for a minute? And I I don't mean to get political, but um, I, I will be honest with you. I was very surprised that the markets did so strongly, and particularly, as you pointed out earlier, 
the uh, small companies uh, did extraordinarily well um, in November and December following his election. Uh, why do you think that is? And um, maybe in a way, what you're going to say is it doesn't matter. Why does no, it matter? I, I think it does matter, Jim. And first I'll tell you, uh, uh, I voted for Charles Krautheimer, so uh, that was my write-in vote for president. Uh, so you know I'm certainly not pro-Donald Trump. Uh, um, but uh, with that said, I, there are actually, I think, here's my advice for people. So one, I think even those who are not for Trump, you need to recognize that there's actually two Donald Trumps here. There's the Think of him as the good Donald and the bad Donald. The good Donald, which is the one that dominated the markets early, is anti-business regulation, free the, uh, the animal spirits of capitalism up, and you'll get much better growth. A lot of business regulation strangles businesses. It's really unnecessary. For example, my view, Dodd-Frank was one of the single worst bills ever written, and no bill worth written that has 2,000 pages could possibly be good. <clears throat> but what most people don't know <clears throat> is that since Dodd-Frank, 25% of all the small banks in the U.S. have disappeared. The small banks make virtually all the loans in the United States to small businesses. Small businesses create uh, on average more than 100% of the new jobs in the country. So if you don't have small banks to lend to small businesses, that's one of the good explanations for why this economy has been the weakest recovery in post-war history. Uh, that's one just example. So the hope is if regulations could be peeled back, it doesn't mean you have no regulations, but you don't have regulations that strangle businesses, we could get a lot more growth. That's part one. Part two of the good Donald is cutting back corporate income tax. Now, every single economist you talk to will tell you the corporate tax rate should be zero. There's virtually no debate on it because corporations don't pay taxes. The buyers of products pay the tax, uh, and the only intelligent way to tax that is through a VAT or a sales a consumption tax. That would be far more intelligent. So cutting a bad tax rate where we're disadvantaging U.S. corporations putting them at a huge disadvantage will certainly be helpful, could lead to a lot of capital coming back to this country and stimulate growth. That's what the market looked at initially. Now we've had more volatility and some days some not such good action because the bad Donald is showing up, anti-immigration, which is a strong force for growth in the U.S., uh, and this whole nationalist attitude, not good. Uh, we could see trade wars as a result, and the other problem with uh, our president is the uncertainty because nobody knows what will come out of his mouth uh, the next minute, and that markets hate uncertainty. So what I think is what you are likely to get over the next four years uh, is a lot of volatility as markets move between the good and the bad Donald, and which is dominating at any one point in time, and if you can't stand volatility, then you probably should be de-risking your portfolio. So let me get to some real quick advice there. So de-risking means removing some equity risk uh, from the portfolio. 
And here's some suggestions that you can take without lowering the expected return of the portfolio. Suggestion one is lower your equity allocation, but raise your allocation of the remaining portion to international and emerging markets. The U.S. currently has a uh, much higher valuations, which means much lower expected returns. U.S. expected returns, most economists think about 6%. Developed markets, more like 8 or 8.5%. And emerging markets, more like 105 or so. So if you own higher expected returning assets, you can own less of them to get the same expected return. So that's one thing investors could do. And I urge people to move towards, if not have, 50% U.S. and 50 international because that's the way the markets are allocated. But by, by the way, Bert Malheur was on the show, and he said something very similar. He say, he talked about the price earnings ratios okay. of the emerging markets being very favorable. They're about twelve. Developed about fifteen in the U.S. About twenty-eight. That's the Cape Ten numbers. And and he the made he made the adjusted. case that that most investors, and particularly for long-term investors who could who could handle a little bit of volatility, should be involved in these markets, at least to some extent? I think you should have 50% U.S., three-eighths developed, one-eighth emerging, and that's because that's how the markets allocate capital, and I'm not smarter than the markets. Now, if you're willing to take more risk to shoot for a higher return, you could do more than that, but I wouldn't stray far from there. Most U.S. investors have very low international allocation, an average of about 10%. I think that's a very bad error, just too much concentration of risk. Second thing you could do, Jim, is, is to the equities you hold, let's say, even the U.S., instead of owning, say, an S&P 500 fund, own a small value fund. Small value stocks have gotten about, at least if you're buying the kind DFA buys, about 13.5% versus the S&P 10 historically. So if you own higher expected returns, you can own less of the equities and then own more safe bonds, which will protect you if markets actually crash. Now, I wrote a book called Reducing the Risk of Black Swans. For investors who are interested in that strategy, you will find that historically that has been a far superior strategy over the long term than investing only in a total market or an S&P 500 fund, a far superior strategy of owning less equity, but the equities you own having really be in the riskier portion of the market. Well, I think that that is terrific. But before we go into the next lesson, I wanted to throw in one other potential explanation of Mm -hmm. why the small companies did so well. So a lot of the corporations um, obviously have top top tax attorneys who finagle around so that Mm -hmm. not that many of the big companies are actually paying the top income tax oh, rate. The that average corporates. is 25 percent, not 38 or 35, I think, is the corporate right, rate. But, yeah, but the but average let, is about 25. But if, if we're going to take your words to heart and that the smaller companies are the ones that are more profitable and many of the right. smaller companies are subchapter S or LLCs that are taxed at the individual rates, even, even like a small company like my own, um, if Donald Trump is successful in lowering the taxes – then that will not just help the big corporations, but that will help the, let's call it the small business owner. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, that might be one of the agree. reasons. 
Yeah, absolutely. I don't think there's just one issue. I think I gave you the two biggest ones, but you're you're absolutely right. I think that certainly played into it. Okay, so let's now talk about something that's a little bit controversial, um, which is ignoring all forecasts. Um, all crystal balls are cloudy. Um, so it, it's it's really interesting. You see all these talking heads on TV, and um, they're talking about either a particular stock or even or even a particular year or a particular segment. But ulti- ultimately, they are forecasting, or you get a guy like Jim Cramer who is talking about uh, different trends and different um, things that could happen. And, and by the way, I, I shouldn't say anything bad about Jim Cramer because if you actually invested in everything that Jim Cramer recommended, when he recommended it, you would have a million dollars today if you started with two million. <laughs> um, but but why, why should investors ignore um, all these talking heads and all these articles um, that are predicting what might happen. Yeah, well, uh, for those of your listeners who are interested, there's actually good scientific evidence. There's a wonderful book called Expert Political Judgment that did a study of the science of forecasting, not just in economists and stock market forecasters, but medicine, science, etc. And they found basically that there are no good forecasters in any field, period. They basically don't exist. Uh, but the evidence is overwhelming that that is true in the stock market. But if you don't like my advice, again, I would suggest if you ask people who is the greatest investor of all time, at least of our generation, the vast majority would say Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett has told investors that you should never pay attention to any forecasters because a forecast tells you nothing about where the market's going, but it tells you a lot about the person. And I recently heard him say he hadn't read or listened to a market or economic forecast in 25 years. So, again, you might ask yourself before you're going to follow some forecaster's advice, are you smarter than Warren Buffett? Uh, so my advice is don't. And I listed here, I think, six or seven forecasts by well-known people, chief economists for major banks who warned one after another of disastrous forecasts. Uh, for example, Charles Robinson, a chief economist, uh, he predicted that in July that stocks would crash 50% within the next 12 months. Well, he's still got a little bit of time to be right, but in the meantime, the market has done quite well. And Carl Icahn, one of the great investors of all time, right, a big name, uh, he said in May of 2016 that the market was in for a day of reckoning, and I'm putting my money where my mouth is. I have a net short position of almost 150%. Uh, so there's a whole list of these there. Your readers can read them, and every one of them turned out to be wrong. Now, I will admit I was cherry-picking. You probably could have found some forecasters who got it right. The problem is how would you have known which ones to listen to and which ones to avoid? The evidence and, says there are no good stock pickers. And, and, before, and be, before we get to the next lesson, I'd actually like to skip to lesson six. Um, sure. Before we get, and, and then I'm also being motioned that it's time for a break. Could you, uh, uh, I want to give our listeners two resources. One is your blog, which can be found at ETF.com. Again, that's ETF.com. Correct. And then in the search bar, 
type in Swedro, S-W-E-D-R-O-E. And I, I think I botched the name of your Warren Buffett book. Is it Think Like no, and Act? Think, Act? think, Act, and Invest Like Warren Buffett. Okay. That, that, I know that you've written 15 books, um, and I've read a number of them. That one is my favorite. Think, oh, Act, great. and Invest Like Warren Buffett. Larry, what I'd like to do is go out of order in case we get cut off near the end, because I actually think you're lesson number nine. Don't mm-hmm. let your political views influence your investment decisions. And I think that that is a really important lesson. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I believe that the majority of the listeners of this show are probably a little bit uh, right-leaning and tend to be Republican. Um, on the other hand, I, I work with a lot of college professors, and they are probably very left of center. And most of the left of center people that I know are in total misery um, and not just, um, let's say, civil rights and international, et cetera, et cetera. But they are also anticipating doom and gloom for the economy, where some of our friends on the right are um, perhaps overly optimistic, uh, thinking that Trump is going to be the answer to all their problems. And it looks like your lesson number nine might be that they're both wrong. Could you give us um, your views on why you shouldn't let your political views influence your investment decisions? Yeah, but the reason is we're all subject to something called confirmation bias. Um, And so if you're, uh, let's use a Democrat now, uh, and then you read something that's going to tell you that Donald Trump is a disaster for the economy, his anti-trade policies are really bad, uh, he's going to stoke inflation and budget deficits, whatever they're saying that's negative, it will confirm your biases, uh, and then you will tend to want to panic and sell and stray from your well-thought-out plan. Uh, on the other hand, if you're a Republican who has heard that, you will develop cognitive dissonance, you'll say, ah, this, you know, that can't be right, this person doesn't know what he's talking about, you know, he's just biased, and you'll ignore it, and you'll actually be a better investor for that. And the reason is the following. There's actually academic research, uh, specifically a paper called Political Climate Optimism and Investment Decisions, that found the following that as individuals we become optimistic and perceive the markets to be less risky and more undervalued when the party we favor is in power. This leads them generally to take on more risk, overweight, riskier stocks. They also tend to trade less, and that's a good thing because we know the evidence is very clear. The more people trade, the worse they tend to do. So if you're just going to stick with your plan, take risk, uh, you're in the long term likely to do better. Uh, the opposite is true. When the opposite party is in power, you become more concerned about uncertainty. You exhibit even stronger behavioral biases leading to poor investment decisions. And I, uh, here's a perfect example of that, Jim. I just recently read this uh, newsletter I get called the Spectrum Affluent Investor and Millionaire. They publish confidence surveys. And they found this very interesting thing. 
prior to the election, if you were identified as a Democrat, you had much higher confidence than those who were Republicans or independents. This completely flipped after the elections. Democrats registered a confidence reading of minus 10, Republicans of plus 9, and independents plus 15. So here's the problem and what I can tell you. From 2000 to 08, my experience was Republicans were much better investors. They tended to stay the course, didn't panic and sell after 9-1-1. If anything, they rebalanced, stayed the course, and because they were more optimistic that the administration would solve the problem and get it right. All the calls that I was getting during those eight years were virtually all from Democrats, liberals. In the next eight years, the exact opposite was true. Uh, the Democrats became much better investors. They tended to stay the course, rebalance, etc. It was the Republicans who were convinced that Obama would destroy the economy, etc. And they ended up much worse investors. Either they panicked and sold, or at least didn't rebalance as they should have. And now it's flipping again. If the key thing is have a well thought out plan. Stick to it. This country has survived 250 years. We survived George Bush, who I think was one of the worst presidents we have ever had, and I tend to vote conservative. We survived Obama, who I think was one of the worst presidents we've ever had, and I think we will survive Donald Trump, who may turn out to be as bad or worse than either one of them. I have confidence in our democracy and our economic system. Um, I'm sorry, but everybody here at the station is cracking up. Um, it's, it's good you don't like anybody. Um, there are plenty of people I would have liked. As I said, I would have. Vo I voted for Charles Krauthammer. Well, uh, interestingly enough, uh, we actually have a have a guest on, and I mainly have him on because he provides such great information regarding Social Security, a guy named Larry Kotlikoff, right. um, who yep. I think is a brilliant economist. Very smart guy. Yep. And, and he ran for president, and his premise is, is that none of these guys know anything about the economy yeah. and that the right. amount of debt that this country has is significantly understated, and only an economist really understands right. it, and that's why he wanted to run. Well, so here's why I'm, uh, while I would not have voted for Trump, I remain optimistic because I'm hoping that Paul Ryan will actually be setting the economic agenda. And Ryan would agree completely with Kotlikoff and is trying to attack the problems of the budget deficit, the entitlement programs that need to be fixed, and why I thought Bush was an awful president, because he blew up the budget deficits, did not do anything about them. Obama made it worse uh, and did nothing to correct the problems. Ryan is the only person in Congress virtually standing up and say we must fix these problems. So I'm hoping, I'd much better be an optimist than a pessimist. It's much more fun going through life that way. So I'm hoping Ryan is the one who's controlling things. So uh, I have the exact same plan I had eight years ago, or eight years ago and 17 years ago, uh, and I've stuck with it through Bush and through Obama, and I'm sticking with it through Trump. Again, I'm an optimist that our democracy and our capitalist system will get it right in the end. And finally, I, I don't think we have a lot of time left, but one of the things I found very interesting, of course, there's 
massive protest against Donald Trump and mm-hmm. his immigration policy. Right. But one of the inter- very interesting protesters who are trying to organize Republican senators uh, to rally around his cause um, is not people on the left, but actually the Koch brothers who are objecting to limiting trade, and they are right. uh, free traders. I, ha- I happen yeah. to be a free trader. Uh, can, you com- can you comment, and perhaps it might be the last uh, t- thing that we have time for, can you comment on Donald Trump's position on free trade uh, and whether that could help or hurt? He's really wrong on this. He's got it dead wrong. Now, he may have it right that we have been taken advantage of and gotten some deals poorly. Uh, Tax structure can solve some of it. So whether you use a border tax or cut out corporate income tax and substitute it with other types of taxes, but you do not want to start trade wars. The worst thing we could do is start slapping tariffs on. That's what happens is you get countries retaliate. Exactly what fueled the Great Depression was the Hoot-Smalley tariff, which was designed to protect American businesses. Uh, Worse is that it can lead to wars. If you want to make sure the world is safe, trade with people, uh, you know, and help them uh, make their country safer. If you can help the Mexican economy, fewer people will leave Mexico to come to the U.S. They'll buy more of our goods. Uh, and we all win. The worst thing, Donald Trump, his worst position is on trade. There he is a complete disaster, in my opinion. Do you think that his view will win, or do you think that the more traditional Republican free traders uh, will ultimately win that well, battle? Let me, uh, I don't have a clear crystal ball. Certainly I'm not a political forecaster. But if I had to guess, I'm, or what I'm hoping is, I think you'll end up with some kind of compromise that pulls him in an intelligent direction. Uh, a lot of it could have been bombast to win the election, appealing to these nativist instincts, which is because most people don't understand how important free trade is. Uh, and once you get through that and he listens to people who make the arguments, then maybe he can pull you know, people like Ryan and others can pull him back towards a more intelligent position and solve some of the trade issue problems through the tax structure. All right. Well, um, we have about two minutes left, and one of the things I sometimes like to do when I have such a knowledgeable and, um, let's say, valuable uh, speaker is, do you have anything that I haven't asked that you think would be um, a good for our listeners to know in the final two minutes. Yeah, the one thing I could suggest is there's been a lot of talk about uh, in the industry about the term smart beta. I personally hate that term. It led me to write a book called Your Complete Guide to Factor-Based Investing, which really gets at this issue of investing in factors and what is called smart beta. So for those of your listeners who are interested in learning about factor-based investing, I've written really, I think, the first book. Uh, it's, as is typical of my books, filled with the academic research. We cite 106 studies providing you with the evidence so you can draw your own conclusions rather than relying on my conclusions and those of my co-authors. So I'll recommend 
readers who are interested in the science, pick up a copy of your complete guide to factor-based investing. And I'll close by saying, readers of my books, I'm always happy to answer questions. Just email me, and you can, and I'm, I return every email I get. All right, Larry, this has been a very informative show. Um, and listeners, uh, I really highly recommend that you take advantage of two of the resources that Larry has mentioned. The factor-based investing is a little bit more intense, but for people who are looking for something a little bit simpler, ETF.com, again, ETF.com, and in the search bar, type in Swedro, S-W-E-D-R-O-E, and the book, Think, uh, um, Think, Act, and Invest Like Warren Buffett by Larry Swedro, S-W-E-D-R-O-E. Thanks again, Larry. Take care. My pleasure. All right. And listeners, if you'd like to meet with Jim Lang in person, give the Lang Financial Group a call at 412-521-2732 to see if you qualify for a free initial consultation. That's 412-521-2732. Or you can connect with Jim's office through his website at paytaxeslater.com. While you're there, you can also get a free digital copy of Jim's latest book, The Ultimate Retirement and Estate Plan for Your Million Dollar IRA. You can also listen to some of our previous radio shows. You can hear more than 150 hours of very valuable shows featuring some of the top national names in investing and retirement planning. The best part is it's all free to you. I'm Dan Weinberg for Jim Lang. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time for another edition of the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. Thanks for listening to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. Check out our show archives and listen on demand anytime at paytaxeslater.com. Our radio listeners can receive free tickets to Jim Lang's Pittsburgh area workshops and more. Call the Lang Financial Group at 412-521-2732 to reserve your seats and meet Jim Lang in person. Or visit paytaxeslater.com. That's paytaxeslater.com. <laughs>